There are going to be some good years and some bad years, but as long as you kind of have that long-term goal that you have to just, you know, you got to stay the course if you really want to see some benefits to your investments. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everybody. It's Kara Golden, and we're so excited to have you here today and have our next guest. I'm very, very excited. Fellow podcaster, but so much more. Farnoosh Tarabi is here with us today, and you may know her as the host of So Money Podcast, but she is also just a total badass, an amazing, amazing person. And she started covering personal finance in 2003 as a reporter for Money Magazine. She later became a correspondent for Jim Cramer's The Street and host of CNBC's primetime show, Follow the Leader. And she's the host of the award-winning So Money Podcast and the author of several best-selling personal finance books, including When She Makes More, 10 Rules for Breadwinning Women, and her work and advice is gold, I will say. It has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur, so many more. And she's appeared on so many Today Show. I mean, you guys would totally recognize her. And she's a contributing editor to Next Advisor, as well as financial columnist for the Oprah Magazine and Oh, and so much more. So welcome, welcome for new show. How are you? Thank you. What a nice, and thank you for that intro. That was yeah, really generous. No, thank awesome. You. And Farnoosh, so happy to have you here. And first of all, tell us a little bit more about you and like, like, how did you start? I mean, what, how did yeah. this all get going? Oh, my parents, like anybody else, right? My parents are immigrants from Iran. They came here in the late, late seventies. I was born in 1980 in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I always say that, you know, who I am is part life experience, school jobs, but it's also, you know, my experiences growing up, my my modeling and my parents, I think, you know, you probably have heard that Middle Easterners are pretty chatty when it comes to money. We're not, we, it's not a taboo topic in our households, whereas in maybe traditional American households, the dinner table conversation is about how is your day? How is work, sports, school? We talk about like real estate and money and- Was that always that? So even with the kid, like the parents talk when the kids are around, so you're- like you oh were. yeah, for better and for worse. I mean, I I got the good and the bad of it, you know, because my it wasn't always a pretty picture in my house. My parents t- argued about money, and I was a single only child for like the first ten years of my life, and I didn't have anyone to. I just was sort of like an adult, you know, in the room, and they would have their fights, and I would be there. So I learned quickly, especially 
from my mom's point of view, you know, how important it was to have as a woman financial independence, because that's often what they fought about was that power struggle. My mother wanted to buy something for the family. My father disagreed. You know, there wasn't this uh, dual income household all the time, although my mom did work, you know, from one year to the next, but it wasn't consistent. And she would always tell me, you know, you got to go out there and make your own money. You make your own money, make your own choices and your decisions in your life. And I never forgot yeah, that. No, that's, mm-hmm. that's amazing that she said that. So do you feel like being an immigrant, like she had different feelings or do you feel like she had more freedom? I don't know. Like, I mean, well, my mother and I, I should preface, we're only 19 years apart. Oh my so while she's technically my mom, she feels like a contemporary, you know, I feel like, you know, I have girlfriends that are in their, you know, late fifties and sixties. And, and I also have a mother who's, you know, in her early sixties. And so growing up, I think that she, obviously I was her daughter, but I also think that she, there was this level of transparency that I think we shared that was not necessarily what was happening at my friend's house next yeah. door with, you know, the age difference makes a huge difference. Like my mother, imagine she was 19 when she had me. I always think about it now because I have two kids and I'm like, okay, I'm 40 now. My mother, who, when she was 40, I was graduating college or I was like a a junior in college. I mean, and I have a six-year-old. So I always think about that. And it's only until you grow up and you experience your own life that you're like, oh my God, what was she going through? And you start to really excuse a lot of the stuff that happened because I do think that, you know, she was learning and and was making mistakes along the way. And I kind of was, I I was along for the ride. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I talk about this all the time. I mean, in my house, it was a little bit different. My mom didn't have me until she was 40. And so, you know, it was also both of my parents were 40. And so I always talk about like, I had an incredible amount of independence because she was 40 years old. (laughs) How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn, quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip, Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally 
first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, The Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Done. They were like, okay, whatever you want to do. I'm not fighting anymore. And so my mom used to say to me, just don't embarrass me and come home safe. And that was it. And (laughs) it's amazing. Yeah, no. And that's all she did. And no more micromanaging. She's realized what is actually important. Yeah. And she decided to switch careers when she was 45. When I went to kindergarten, she decided to go into fashion. At, she was an art history major. And then she decided to go into fashion. So, I mean, I, of course, didn't appreciate any of this until much later. But I do believe that, you know, 
how your parents ultimately raise you. And we talked about money a lot as well, like growing up. And I think it's makes you who you are. So you ended up becoming a financial expert. Like, how did this happen? Right. So I think the reason I brought up my childhood and the money talks was because I grew up with this fluency around money. And I got to college and realized like, I'm kind of the only one that's, that's feels like the topics around money are normalized, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, I knew from an early age that I had something to share that no one really else wanted to share, but it was important. And that was, you know, how to budget and how to save and talk about money. And I was really curious about the money world and I majored in finance in college, but didn't want to necessarily go down the path of managing people's money or sitting behind a computer. I, again, really was more fascinated with the narratives, the stories, the history, and the practicality of it. So I paired that degree with a degree in journalism. I went to Columbia after undergrad, went to get my master's in journalism at Columbia. And right off the gate, I started working as a reporter at Money Magazine. And it was there that I worked with some fascinating editors. This was early 2000s. And I I started to see how to be entrepreneurial as a journalist. So in school, they teach you how to do journalism in one of many ways. You can either be a magazine person, a TV person, a radio person, a pick a lane is essentially the, the advice. At Money, I worked with editors who were also writing books and speaking and appearing on television. And I thought that's the way I want to do it because I'm sort of like, I always say like, I'm the appetizer girl. Like I don't like to go to a restaurant and commit to a meal. I want to try everything. I have a lot of things I want to accomplish. And it just, for me, it felt right. It felt very me to be able to do what I love, which is storytell and help people with their money, but do it across all these different platforms didn't really think of it as like income security thing. Cause it really is that too. It's like diversifying your income is one of the best ways to um, secure your financial life. But initially it was just a lot more interesting for me to do it, to pursue it that way. And I think there was more job security in it too. So if I, you know, if my magazine job didn't work out, I had other things to fall back on. And that's actually what ended up happening was years into my career as a journalist, I got laid off, but I had a book coming out. And that book ended up becoming basically my parachute and the platform from where I began the rest of my career as an expert and never having to go to that desk job in a newsroom. Yeah, that's amazing. I was actually a minor in finance. I was a journalism major with a minor in finance. So yeah, so uh, never ended up getting my major, but I always talk about, I, you know, am a huge believer that if you don't understand finance or marketing or whatever, or you don't have respect for it or or whatever. Like I always talk about this on college campuses when I'm speaking, like that's the place to go and take these classes. And I was just, I love, you know, finance when I started like hearing more and more about it. And I was, you know, my first job was actually at Fortune magazine, or I should say I tried to get a job at Fortune. My first job was at Time, (laughs) but because I just became so obsessed with the finance side of like, you know, just basically what journalism was doing around this topic of finance. So, well, yeah. And, and around the time when I was graduating from school, it was 
a lot of the stories you were reading about in the world of finance was the corruption, the Enrons yeah. of the world, right? And Fortune was very much at the forefront of covering a lot of that, those fraudulent cases. And I think, you know, for the first time in a while, financial news became front headline news, front cover news. And there was a real thirst and, and need for more reporting and more reporters in the space. So I kind of arrived to the scene with a lot of job opportunity and there was a lot of like new interest in what was traditionally like, you know, section D of the newspaper it was now page A. you know? Yeah. It used to be like the Wall Street Journal was the place that covered finance. And then, you know, the others were yeah. just fluffy. Right. And, and then it just, I truly think like your timing when you were there was just, was crazy. So obviously we're in this crazy time period right now. What do you think is the biggest financial mistake that people are making? Well, it's a rough time. I mean, not to sugarcoat it at all. I mean, we have unemployment levels we haven't seen since the last recession, the great depression. We have people who can't make rent. We have people who are furloughed, unemployed, um, we don't know when the next stimulus is going to happen, if it's going to happen. And so there's clearly a lot of emotions running on high right now. Money, if anything I've learned over the last 20 years, is that money is not just dollars and cents. It's an extremely emotional issue for people. And what I would say the biggest mistake now or anytime, but especially now because you know people are really scared and worried and, and anxious, which is all normal, but to not make any decisions based on those emotions. So if you're worried mm -hmm. about everything that's going on, the uncertainty in the election, the uncertainty in the markets, to say that this is then an excuse or a reason to stop investing in the stock market or to, well, who cares about saving money because the world's ending? You know, like there are people who actually think that way. And so they sort of throw caution to the wind. I would say that's a big mistake. We saw this happen in the last recession where the market tanked and the economy tanked and people pulled out of their retirement accounts because they were sick of seeing the losses, not realizing that it's sort of part of the journey. You know, there are going to be some good years and some bad years, but as long as you kind of have that long-term goal that you have to just, you know, you got to stay the course if you really want to see some benefits to your investments. And so I just want to caution people to not repeat those mistakes because those people who did pull out of the market in 2009 or 2008, you know, it took them forever to regain those profits, if, if at all. Those who stayed the course, of course, they, they saw an 11-year bull market, experienced that. So don't let your emotions dictate your money moves. It's fine to feel your feels recognize them, but ultimately go back to the facts and history and where you want to go and the tools and the path you got to take to get there. Um, work with an advisor, talk to friends. The other mistake is I think, Kara, we often keep our financial concerns and questions to ourselves. Again, because it's a taboo topic, there's a lot of insecurity around money. We don't want to let it be known that we're making mistakes or we don't know how to do things or we've even lost our job or we don't have a way to pay next month's rent. So we just sort of feel like we have to deal with it on our own. That's the biggest mistake you can make because help is out there in many shapes and sizes, forms, but you have to be the one to first let it be known, right? So calling up your lender, mm -hmm. calling up your bank, calling up your billers and saying, or your landlord and saying, I 
need to talk to you about the fact that I, you know, I'm struggling. And yeah. these organizations are set up to help in times like these, but they're not going to know if you don't tell them. And so that's a big detriment to us if they're just not talking about it is, is actually hurting us more than we think. And women today, I don't know what the number is at the moment, but clearly somebody was sharing with me the other day that there's been no other time when women have left the workforce in such high numbers. And I think, you know, we're obviously going to see sort of the economy numbers on that. I, you know, worry because I also think women working and clearly we've made so much progress. And now going back during this time, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's works in a hospital. And she was saying that like the number of even first responders that are women that, you know, now that school is, is not live, it's virtual, you know, they've, they've got to stay home with the kids. And so it seems like more and more, you know, women are kind of the brunt of that. I mean, clearly men are as well, but I worry, you know, about women and kind of what that ultimately does. Yeah. And I think it just reminds us of just how important things like childcare and education are to the solvency of our country. And in particular, the ability for everybody, mostly women to be able to work, right? Yeah. Unless you don't have kids, I don't see how, you know, a parent right now, a mom, who maybe had a job but has two kids at home learning virtually and maybe doesn't make enough to pay for childcare can make it work. And it's yeah. it's like you, we have tied women's hands behind their backs. And I think it starts with, we need more infrastructure, social infrastructure to give families the support they need so that they can be more, they can show up more at work and be better at work. I mean, it's to no one's gain when women are out of the workforce everybody loses. Let's just make that clear. It's not just women. It is companies who miss out on that talent. And, you know, it's shareholders who aren't going to make as much. Let's let, like, let's, let's talk about what we actually care about in this country money. If we, if fewer women are working, that's, that is a financial cost to everybody, not just households, but also commerce, the stock market shareholders. So I'm using the language that we apparently speak right now in this country, which is we care about the stock market and the economy. I like to think that we care about more things, but it, the buck stops, you know, at women sometimes. Like we need not just women, but all types of people working, right? We need all those ideas and experiences showing up in boardrooms and decision-making moments and it is to our country's detriment if we cannot solve this. And the underpinning, I think, for a lot of this is coming up with a solution for childcare that is affordable, that is accessible, education that can continue to work in times of pandemics and not. You know, what did they do during the Spanish flu? They had school outside. I often think about mm-hmm. like, that, you know, what if we imagined a world where technology didn't exist for just a minute? And how would we solve the education crisis in a pandemic? We're almost relying too much on technology and not understanding how this is trickling down to really hurt families that can't, that can't support their families, everybody under one roof all the time. You know, kids go to school, not just for school, but for food, for someone to take care of them while their parents can work. Yeah. So it's getting to sometimes the more foundational stuff. And I hope that now we're really realizing and reckoning with that in a way that we realize the cost and we won't go back to making those mistakes. 
Yeah. And also it, you know, if we actually do try and solve those issues, then it actually creates jobs too. Right. Cause the first thing that I was thinking is, you know, if you've got first responders and there just aren't, aren't enough, right? Because they don't have childcare that they've got to stay home. Like how about actually go and create a facility? Right. And you know, how many people would actually say, Oh, I'm going to go work at that hospital because they've got childcare or whatever. I just think that like, it's just, it's not that hard. The entrepreneur in me like right. looks at that stuff and I'm like, it's really not that hard. There's a lot of private hospitals now. I mean, they can just go do it. Right. And it's just, people aren't doing it. And I think somebody needs to like show up and actually do it right. at some point because I think it's, you know, super important. But anyway, so you've written many, many books, but the most recent one is called When She Makes More, 10 Rules for Breadwinning Women. What prompted you to write this book? Well, the idea arrived, I would say 2012. I was about to get married. I've been covering personal finance for all of my career. And I felt like I wanted to write a book for women. My next, this is my third book and I wanted to dedicate it to women, but I didn't want to just kind of write the same old book for women about money, which is just sort of like, you're not doing enough. Here's how to do more, you know, the same old speech. So I thought about what's a problem that I'm actually experiencing. You know, if I'm experiencing a problem, I wonder if maybe this is a, a more paramount issue. And for me, something that was kind of gnawing at me that I wasn't really talking to anybody about that was kind of like this elephant in the room was the fact that I out-earned my fiance, then fiance, now husband. And it was the sort of thing where I got a lot of side eye from people like everyone from like my mom to coworkers to society at large, that there was this sort of pessimism, like doubt that the, my relationship could actually work, you know, long-term with a female bringing home more money, a female who would want to have children one day, who would want to like, quote unquote, have it all. How does it work if you're making more? What are the sacrifices that you're going to have to make? Could you even be happy in that role? Like there was so much sort of doubt encircling this, this life that I'd chosen, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I think at the end of the day, I sought a man who, knowing myself, knowing that I like really source a lot of my sense of ego and pride and self-worth from work and earning, that I would want a man who would sort of be complementary to that, right? That wouldn't be so attached to his title and his earnings, but would rather be more, play more of a supportive figure, helping with household and family life and stuff like that. And so- maybe even not consciously, but subconsciously, I sought out a man like my husband. And I, I arrived at that feeling like I was not winning at the game of marriage, that I wasn't winning at the game of life, that there was all this like doubt and confusion around my life choice. And it was, hmm. I felt like it was super unfair, but I wanted to also understand why. And was I alone? You know, why is it that it was ironic? I was raised to be an independent woman, to ask for raises, to save my money, to all the things, go to school, go to grad school. So I did. And then mm -hmm. yet I marry a man who makes a little bit less than me. And suddenly no one is celebrating this. Everyone is like, how is this going to work? Oh, how does your husband feel about, you know? And I was like, what, 
all of a sudden the world changed. And I was like, this is interesting. This is like the sticky stuff that I like to get into. And so I just started talking to women who I sensed were also in my shoes. How are they feeling? What are they experiencing? And just open this like Pandora's box. And then I started talking to behavioral experts and gender experts and marital experts about what is going on. And I didn't want to just write a book explaining the problem. I wanted to write a book that could help save relationships. Because what I found, the biggest, most sort of um, stopping your track statistic that I unearthed in all my research was that when she makes more, there is a higher correlation for divorce. So, you know, the suggestion is that when, you know, money's always a source of contention in relationships, but you add it this extra layer of complexity of nuance and what happens like any relationship when it comes to money challenges, communication breaks down and you don't deal with it until it gets to become too late and you split up. But also we found that, you know, there is this in some marriages, not all, but sometimes the men become emasculated. They try to find there's more chance for infidelity in relationships when she makes more on both sides, women and men seeking alternative outlets. And that again, I was like, I just felt like it was not fair. Like the world sets you up for failure in a way, you know, we're not giving women and men the tools to be able to complete their lives in a way that they feel fulfilled and successful. Because if you are that woman who wants to go and be ambitious and make more and all the things, why shouldn't you be able to marry for love exclusively for love and, and be, and that's, and that's it happily ever after. Why do you got to deal with all this baggage around gender expectations, money, blah, blah, blah. And same for him. Like this book is really for couples, even though the title suggests that it's just for women. But I find that women often share the reading with their partners and it's be- it becomes kind of this marriage therapist in the form of a book that helps them to kind of find resolve and come up with a plan to better address some of these insecurities that they may have or the words that they need to be able to better communicate around this issue. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm excited to read it. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. So let's talk about your podcast, So Money. You've done over 1,100 yeah. episodes. That's amazing. <laughs> and when did you start? Five years ago. So I've had some time. Okay. You were early. Was, you yeah. know, and even then I thought I was late to the game, you know, because there's, at this point, there are podcasters for like 10 years. and But yeah, I, I started the show in 2015 after I had my first kid. I wanted to find a platform for myself where I could perhaps even reach a bigger audience, but not leave my house because I was sort of, you know, motherhood and, and podcasting was sort of that intersection of all those things that I was looking for in a way to amplify my brand and get out there more, but also on my own terms, the terms that I could manage at the time, like I couldn't be getting on a plane and and traveling. So it was great. The show is now three times a week. And I have great guests on like you and all walks of life. The idea is that we bring on sometimes really famous people or people you've never heard of, but they're all very accomplished talking about their money. So not conversation you normally would have with somebody because again, we don't talk about money. It's rude in our culture. You know, you don't ask someone like, what was their biggest money failure? Like it it just doesn't come up, you know? But, But the show tries to, I try to like really break down those barriers, get you to know somebody in a different way, whether that's Kara Golden or Suzanne Summers or Queen Latifah or gosh, you know, at this point, 
I've interviewed like Tim Gunn. Did you know that he didn't negotiate the first two seasons of Project Runway? He actually got paid nothing because he didn't even think to ask for money because he didn't even think that what he was doing for the show constituted earning a paycheck because he wasn't in show business. He was, he's an academic. Yeah. And it wasn't until meeting an agent where he learned just how silence can, you know, basically rob you. And, um, you know, all these like little, these stories that I will never forget that just to me, it's a reminder that money affects all of us. We all make the mistakes, but we all have also some successes to share. We're all experts in our own right through our life experiences. And that's what the show really brings to light. And then uh, once a week, I answer listeners questions. So you can write in, you can reach me on social media. And I take all those questions. And on Fridays, we try to give the audience some answers. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. I love your podcast. It's so good. And I haven't heard that one though, actually. I think I'm usually earlier in the week when I'm listening. So that's yeah, awesome. Ask for news. It's on Fridays. So send me your questions. And sometimes I have listeners co-host. So if you're really rare, if you're really itching to get on and share the mic with me, let me know. Yeah, I love that. That's such a great idea. So what is the best advice you've ever received? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I had a conversation about five years ago with Barbara Stanny, who's a financial expert in her own right. She's like trailblazer in this space. She's written multiple books for women about money. And over the years, we've become friends. I've interviewed her on my podcast a couple of times. And she's all about helping women experience financial breakthroughs. So what is holding you back from feeling like you, first of all, maybe even deserve to be rich? Like, I think that we sometimes feel that there's a negative association with the idea of richness, right? We watch shows like Real Housewives and we're like, oh, if I'm going to be rich, I'm going to be a crazy person, you know, or (laughs) when you become rich, you become a different person. You don't become, you know, nobody wants to talk to you. That's not me. And I think I had a little bit of that in me, you know, where I, I felt like I was doing fine. Like in my head, I was like, well, I'm making enough. Like I'm good. You know, I don't want to push it. I don't want to press my luck, push my luck. I just want to keep making what I'm making and keep a quiet life. And, you know, everyone's got what they need and that's it. Like nice yeah. little life. And she was like, why are you thinking bigger? First of all, why don't you think that you can have a better life and how, and how money can help you get there? Like you seem to have this disbelief. And I was like, you are absolutely right. There's no reason why I can't be making twice what I'm making and still be the same person who I am and feel good about the way that I'm making my money. I just have to commit to that. And not only that, but I think it really was like discovering the why behind it. So maybe I hadn't explored that. And that's why I kind of stopped short. My why at that point after that conversation became that it's not enough for me to just feel like, oh, I'm making enough for my family. There's so many people that I want to help. There's such a a bigger impact that I want to make. And I think that that's important to everyone listening is like, if you're struggling to figure out why you might want to become rich or earn more, or even just 10% more than what you're making now, because you're comfortable Mm -hmm. and life's good. And you don't want to disrupt that. And you think money might disrupt that, but think about what might be on the other side of that, of earning more. And at some point, maybe it's not about you, but what is the impact you want to have in the world, right? The legacy that you want to leave. Do you want to contribute more to charity? Do you want to start a business? Do you want to help your grandchildren start a business? Do you want to, you know, go back to school, like travel more, you know, expand your life, expand your impact, 
And you'll see how the money can benefit all of that. And you'll be more motivated to go and actually achieve those financial wins. And I think that having that conversation with her, I, I so appreciated that moment. It was like a phone call on my bed, in my bedroom, you know, it was like love it. an article and then it internally turned into like a personal therapy session. And I was like, you're absolutely right, Barbara. Like I've been playing, I have to play bigger because yeah. why not? You know, there's so many women and men out there making more than I am. And I am the same person as that person, you know, like there's nothing that, yeah, there's nothing- says that Right. And so I just had to decide that that's what I want. And I don't, there's no sacrifice. It's just, it's just, you know, maybe, and I didn't, I'm not working harder. I'm working smarter. You know, I think that's the other thing that I assumed you had to do. I thought like, I would never see my kids again. I, like I'd be working like 24 hours a day and no, it's just about I totally figuring agree. out your strategy. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of what I talk about in my book as well, that you know, at the end of the day, I often think that people put up their own roadblocks, right? Or walls in front of them. And because, you know, well, I have kids and, you know, what would my life be like? Like, this is enough or whatever. You've now decided, right? You've made that decision. And so I often say to people, it's actually possible. Yes, that is a choice that you're making, by not moving forward. But I think a lot of people just don't even know that that wall is there. They actually make it a very big leap to actually say, well, this isn't possible if, right? right. Or, you know, and it's what I talk about in my book coming out soon. I said, yay, overcoming doubts and doubters is that, you know, so many, I mean, I had four kids under the age of six when I started Hint. And, you know, that was not going to prevent me from launching a company. And so a lot of people have said, oh, you're fearless. You're, you know, you never had doubts or whatever. No, no, no. Like I had all that, but the key (laughs) thing that I had that is different than what a lot of people that I meet have is that I, you know, had this, well, what can I do? And if there's a will, there's a way. And I figured out like time management and yes, I had childcare, but I also, you know, took breaks during the day so that I could go to mommy and me classes. And like my, it was just a little bit unconventional. And so for me, starting my own company, I was actually able to, you know, set up this life that I was able to do both. And so what I talk to people is about all the time is maybe your traditional role is not, doesn't sort of work, right? For having kids and sort of making more money or getting a raise or getting a, you know, elevate your whatever. But I think that it's time for a lot of people to really think about, you know, what it is that's blocking them. And so often it's yourself. Yeah. You know, that's ultimately doing it. So, well, this is amazing. So I always ask people the question, what makes you unstoppable? And I'd love to kind of hear your opinion. It could be today unstoppable. It could be forever unstoppable. Wow. I'm unstoppable because I feel as though I have no other choice, but to keep going, you know, that's a good thing. Some of the best decisions in life are the ones that are made for you. Like I look at my kids, I look at my mortgage, I look at, you know, also the, the, the sacrifice that my family made coming here, you know, to bring it back to where we started to be the daughter of an immigrant of immigrants, to see their sacrifice. 
I got a running start in life more the so than they did. And, you know, they came here out to start over. I was born, you know, with America as my homeland where, you know, the land of freedom. And so I feel like I owe it to them to not screw up and to not just give up. You know, I want to continue that legacy out of respect for them. But yeah, also I've got a mortgage and kids, so I can't just, <laughs> I can't just take a break, Carol. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But you just moved. You moved out of the city. We did. And we're so yeah. much happier. You know, I think we loved being, I was in New York for 19 years, 19 years, more than I've ever lived anywhere else. But at some point, you know, your life adjusts, changes, you want different things. And I'm just, you know, 13 miles away. It's not like I went to oh, Argentina. It's so easy. You could still get in there and super, yeah. super, super fast. That's, that's awesome. Okay. So, so many podcasts for those of you. So many podcast.com. Check it out when she makes more. Follow me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. We're having a lot of fun on Instagram. I, I mean, it's like, it's such a fun platform. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, I'm really, no, into I it. love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And everybody, I'm sure you're going to love and or you have loved this podcast so definitely give some great marks and subscribe and all that kind of stuff to what you're hearing so thanks so much Farnoosh and thank you really really appreciate it before we sign off I want to talk to you about fear people like to talk about fearless leaders but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.